Welcome. Glad that you are here this morning. Uh, for those of you who may not know which seminar you're in, you just chose the most appropriate room and closest one. Uh, you are about to learn how to build a sticky church. We are looking here at Unusual Witness, the track that, uh, that teaches us, by the grace of God, how we can be more effective in witnessing to others. So uh, how to build a sticky church is what we're going to be looking at this morning. My name is Eric Flickinger. I'm the associate speaker for It Is Written. I'm joined in this panel discussion by two very good friends and colleagues of mine. We have Michelle Ducamus, who is an assistant associate professor, assistant professor, there we go, of business at Southern Adventist University. She's also one of the instructors at the SALT program. Uh, SALT is soul winning and leadership training. You know how we Adventists love acronyms, can't seem to get away from them. So SALT is soul winning and leadership training. It is the, uh, the soul winning school, evangelism school of It Is Written and Southern Adventist University. We work together with the program. And we have at the far end of the table there, Douglas Naa. He is the director of the SALT program uh, there on the campus of Southern. Uh, you know he's dedicated to the work of soul winning because he came to the program from pastoring in a place called Hawaii. So we are grateful to have him here, absolutely. And uh, our hope and prayer is that our time together this morning from uh, 1045 till right about noon is going to be beneficial and uh, will give us some practical ideas of how to build a sticky church. So let's begin with prayer, then I'll share with you a little bit of a story uh, those of you who have maybe heard me speak before know that I love stories, and the kind of stories I love most are ones that we call true stories. How many of you love true stories? So I'll be sharing a true story with you to get started. Uh, then we'll have a little bit of discussion among ourselves, and then have a bit of a panel discussion. So we'll kind of work through this hour in 15 minutes, and by the grace of God, it will be a blessing to you. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we're grateful to be able to be here together to talk about the work that you have called each one of your children to, and that is witnessing and soul winning. I can't imagine that there's much that brings greater joy to your heart than seeing someone who makes a decision to choose to be with you throughout eternity. So bless us as we seek to find ways this morning that we can help our churches to not just gain members, but to retain them and to teach them how they can be active participants in the work of soul winning as well. Uh, bless us as we endeavor to do that. Guide and direct our conversation today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to share a story with you about Keith and Jenny. I met Keith and Jenny several years ago when I was doing an evangelistic uh, campaign in Kentucky. And as I visited with them, they were members of the church, had been for a little while anyway. And I talked with them, and I always like to hear stories from church members about how they came to the church? How did they come to the truth? What, what touched their hearts and made them make that decision to join the Seventh-day Adventist Church? And so I was having dinner with them one evening. They're a youngish couple. I, I guess they're getting younger and youngerish and youngerish by the, uh, by the year uh, as I get olderish and olderish. But uh, they were probably early 30s and had a couple of young kids. Talk with them. I said, how'd you hear this message? And they said, you know, it was interesting. We got a handbill in the mail one day for a seminar, a Bible prophecy seminar. And it sounded really interesting. So we decided to go to it. We couldn't go the first few nights, but we went several nights after it had started. And the night that we went, they were identifying the Antichrist beast of Revelation 13. We thought, that sounds really interesting. And so they came. 
And they were sitting there in the audience in the chairs, and as the evangelist was going through the identifying marks of the little horn and the, uh, the second beast of Reve- or first beast of Revelation, chapter 13, uh, Keith started to kind of sink down in his chair, point after point after point after point. And his wife said, what, what are you doing? What's, what's wrong with you? He said, I know the identity of the Antichrist. And it just so happens that Keith and his wife were raised Catholics. So he was seeing the points and they were settling home and he knew kind of where things were going. But he also realized that what he was hearing was biblically accurate. He said, I can't deny it. It doesn't make me feel comfortable, but I can't deny it. It's the truth. And at the end of the campaign, Keith and his wife, Jenny, were baptized and joined the church. Excited about it. But not long after that, some members of the church kind of pulled them aside and said, you know, that seminar that you went to was really, really good. And they shared a lot of things with you. But there are a few things that they didn't cover during the seminar that it would be good for you to know about. And they started to tell Keith and Jenny about the time of trouble that was coming and how there was going to be great persecution against the Adventists. And they started to tell them about how concentration camps were being built across the country right now to house the Sabbath keepers during this difficult time and how the government had already begun surveillance of them from the time that they were baptized and how black helicopters would circle their neighborhood and keep keep watch on them. You can imagine what this did to Keith and Jenny. They started looking over their shoulders everywhere they went they were very uncomfortable. They, they, after a while, they started thinking, you know what, if this is what it's all about, we really don't need this. And so they seriously began to contemplate leaving the church. By the grace of God, some other members saw what was happening. I will say some more well-balanced members saw what was happening, and they They drew close to Keith and Jenny, and they built positive relationships and friendships and trust with them and helped them to see the gospel a little bit more clearly and to not focus on some things that may not have a complete element of truth to them. And so, by the grace of God, Keith and Jenny were brought back into a little more uh, positive relationship with the message of the scripture and the church, and they stayed in the church. So that one had a good ending. Do all the stories have good endings? I think if you're here this morning, it's probably because you're familiar with one or two stories that don't necessarily have good endings. And so, or at least don't have good presence. Maybe the ending yet will be good by the grace of God. But I wanted to give us a little exercise to get started this morning. Why do people leave the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Often, there's really not a single reason, but it's a journey. It sort of starts with something, a seed being planted, and then that seed grows into something more ominous, and then something else gets added to it, and there's this snowball effect that ultimately results in people leaving the church. I want to encourage you to think of someone you know who is no longer in the church. How many of you can think of at least one person that is no longer in the church? That's nearly every hand in here. Think of that one person or family and ask yourself, what significant events in their journey brought them to that point of decision? Why did they leave? If you have some idea, what were the things that brought them to that? I want to encourage you to find somebody near you, 
groups of no more than three, two or three people, share with your neighbor about this person or this family and what caused them to, to leave. We're not going to judge or critique their decision right now. Just describe it to the person who's sitting next to you. And then we're going to share together as a group. And we'll share about two or three of these stories and see if these stories marry up to what we're about to share with you for the general experiences uh, as to why people leave the church. So take about four minutes, something like that. Just share briefly with somebody who's seated near you about someone you know who left the church. Have them share with you, and then we're going to share a few of those stories amongst ourselves. So take just a few minutes to do that, if you would. All right. I'm going to ask for just a couple of volunteers who, in over the course of about three to four sentences can just share very concisely about the experience with the person that you're talking about. Rosalind is, has a mic back there. If you're willing to share just very briefly about that person or family that you, uh, that's on your mind and what brought them to the decision to leave the church, just raise your hand in the air. Again, we're looking for just three, four sentences, very brief. Uh, this will kind of give us an idea of what everybody is experiencing. There we go. There's a hand up. They, they left the church because the church had Sunday preachers come in and preach to them. All right, so you had Sunday preachers coming and preaching on a, in a Sabbath church. It's going to change some things. Yep, go right ahead. I had a granduncle who accepted Christ but left the church because the church had read a statement from Ellen White, partially read that statement, that Christians ought not to vote, and did not really explain what it meant, and I really threw him into a fit. He went out and drank himself to debt. All right, so that's a Being statement. judgmental is not a good thing. Yeah, judgmentalism and statements taken out of context. Very good. Another hand back there. So I was meeting with this gentleman back here in the corner, and we both agreed that uh, for social reasons, church not being social enough, if you go to a church and you don't have family or close friends to visit with after church, you have individuals that come and go to church, and they're not connected through the week outside of that church, and so people drift because of the social aspect. Social and aspects. We got maybe one or two more hands. I think we've got a moment. One in the back here. Anybody else? We got one time for one more, I think. Go right ahead. For me, once, um, I visited a Seventh-day Adventist church, and it wasn't pleasant. You know, it was a little racism in it. All right. Yep. One or two more. There's another hand right up here. So raise your hand up one more time so that Rosalind can find you. She's moving quickly. Look at her go. Thank you, Rosalind. All right, right. There we go. Oh, another one. We got a couple. A couple hands. Right there. We got two hands. That's all right. We got time. Go right ahead. Who was There we go. We've had people leave our church from being overworked. Being overworked. You know, yep. Burnout. Yep. When you've got just a few people who are doing everything. Makes it a challenge. And then right back here, I think, just behind you, Rosalind, go right ahead. Right behind you. I have my coworker. She's been Adventist because uh, she left the Adventist church because she said, too fanatic. Okay, too fanatic. Yes. Very good. All right. Thank you very much. We can go ahead and bring the, the mic back up here to Michelle. All right. Thank you very much. So let's, let's talk a little bit about what's happening Statistically, for every 100 new members who join the Adventist church, 49 of them eventually leave the church. 
That's what the statistics have been telling us of late. Uh, we're doing a fairly good job of gaining members. Uh, in fact, there aren't too many Protestant faiths out there that are gaining people faster than we are, if there are any. We may be at the top of the heap. But we're also losing them pretty quickly. Uh, so out of, the, out of existing members, about one in three are going to leave. This loss is even more significant among young adults, I think many of us realize that, where up to 70% are leaving the church. So the question is, have we left the back door, and some might suggest also the side door, uh, swinging wide open? So why are people leaving? Only about 5% say that it's because of doctrine. The vast majority say it doesn't have anything to do with the doctrine that the church is teaching. Biblically, it's accurate. That's what 95% are saying. The largest portion, though, 28%, said that they left because they just sort of drifted away. 25% cited a lack of compassion. I think that was shared over here. So a quarter of them. 19% cited a moral failure. They wanted to live right. They slipped up. They fell. They felt bad about it. And they didn't feel that they could come back to church. 18% said they did not fit in. We had several people mention that. We just don't fit into this congregation. 14% felt that there was too much of a focus on minor issues. So what do you notice about each of these? People drifted away, a lack of compassion, a moral failure, not fitting in, focusing on minor issues. What do you notice about those things, those reasons why people left? Not making friends? Not connecting with people? Right. Yeah, go right ahead. Judgmentalism? So, one of the nice things about all of these reasons, they can be fixed. These are fixable. You know, doctrine is doctrine. It is what the Bible teaches. This is fixable. So one of the most significant facts we found in reasons for people leaving is a stressful life event. Somebody moved out of state. They had been in a church where they fit in regularly. They had a, a regular church life and then they moved out of state and had to find a new congregation that just didn't quite fit like the old one. Marriage, a lot of times when people get married, that's a big life event, and you're looking for either a new church, or when your spouse comes to join your church, it changes the dynamic. Divorce, a death in the family, all big uh, stressful life events. And what did the church do? Many people said when these things happened, the church did guess what? Nothing. When I got divorced, nobody said anything, at least nothing positive, right? When, when we left town, few people even recognized the fact that we had left. No one noticed, no effort to reach out. But there's good news in this. Very few of the former members, though, are hostile toward the church. Most of them don't hate the church. They just say, you know what? The church just didn't care about me. And because they didn't care, I figured I'd just move on. But they're not hostile. And about 58% of them said that under certain circumstances, they would be open to reconnecting with Adventism. That's a pretty good stat. I mean, if we're going to look for the, the silver lining on the, on the dark cloud, 60% 60, 60 more or less said, you know what, if the opportunity came, I'd be open to coming and reconnecting with the church. That's all right. Now, our hope and prayer, though, is that we never get to this point. We don't want the people to leave so that we have to bring them back. So what can we do to make church a little stickier? 
so that people, it's, a church becomes a member magnet. They want to stay by. So we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about how we keep people, and we'll break this down into three different areas. Embracing new members to begin with, empowering them, and then employing them in active labor for the Lord. And when I use the word employ here, the verb employ, I'm speaking less of fiduciary compensation and more in the, the frame of mind of active use. How do we use them actively? And so we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about this between ourselves, and we'll, uh, we'll invite you to participate as well. And uh, talking and breaking it down into, like I said, three different areas. Uh, first of all, in embracing our new members who come into the church. And again, I'm joined by uh, Michelle and Douglas. Uh, they both have no small amount of experience in dealing with churches from Bible work perspective, from pastoral perspective, from evangelist perspective, uh, from beginning to end. Uh, we've got a, a fair bit of experience up here and, and a story or two, I reckon, along the way that we're going to hear. So let me just kind of open up by asking this question. What have churches done? What have you found that churches have done to be more friendly, uh, just to be a, a, a welcoming place that people, new people can come into and can feel like they're being embraced by, uh, by the new church? Any thoughts there? Well, that's a lot. There's a lot that can go under that, but I have found that some of it starts at the very beginning. They say you never get a second chance to make a first impression, right? You've heard that. So what happens when, when people come in the door even? That's one place that I've started or seen help with churches that I've been a part of is really making an effort for the greeters to be more than bulletin dispensaries. Right. And I've been to churches where you walk in the door, you get a nice happy Sabbath and a bulletin and that's it. No one is like, this is where you go. Can I help you? No one remembers the name. And so we started making an effort to really try to remember people's names. And then even some code things to know where the visitors were. So this was really kind of subversive. One thing we tried is we, we got a little gift, like a little flower or something for people who are new to the church or visitors. And... They liked it, but that was a code for the rest of the members to know, hey, there's someone new, go talk to them. So it was kind of a secret way, a little different than just having all the visitors stand up in the middle of the church service. And so that's just one thing to start with, is trying to find ways from the very beginning when they walk in to know who they are and to have other members know also, go say hi to this person, make friends with them. Good. Douglas. Yeah, one of the things that I have... Um when I was pastoring that I have tried to focus on is getting uh, church members to embrace each other uh, before they, you know, it's really difficult to embrace another person when they come into a church that's not even embracing each other. And so I think that has been one of the, one of the things for me that I have, you know, tried to, and, and that comes in the form of uh, training and, you know, uh, dealing with conflicts in the church, but just getting the church to embrace each other. And I think when new members come into the church and they see that, then, you know, it's, it's, it's an easy sell. It, it does make a big difference. One thing that I've seen churches do very effectively is to have regular name tag Sabbaths. Now, what's the benefit of a name tag Sabbath? If you've ever been a part of a, a decent-sized church, it's not uncommon for members to not know the names of other members. Uh, there's sort of a, a code word or a code phrase that you'll hear expressed in, in Adventist churches on a regular basis. 
happy Sabbath, brother, as you pass in the hallway. Happy Sabbath, sister. Happy Sabbath, brother. You know what that really means, right? That means you don't remember their name. So that's, that's really what it means. But, uh, but if you have regular name tag Sabbaths, just with the first name, everybody in church, members, guests, everybody, wears a name tag. That helps the members not have to go through that awkward uh, discussion or talk with the other member that they can't remember their name. If they see on a regular basis the names, the first names of people who are in the church all the time, all of a sudden that, that, uh, that awkwardness disappears because they now know the names of the other members in the church. And once they know the names of the other members, then they can start to know uh, the names of, of guests and get to know them too. I really liked your point on that too, Douglas. Just the, the whole idea that if, if we're not building community with ourselves, how are we going to bring other people into that? Now, some churches go on the opposite side and it becomes cliquish. Yes. And that can be a problem too. We're only comfortable with ourselves and we don't bring other people in. I mean, I remember going to one church once where they have the, the visitors go through the potluck line first, you know? So I did and sat down and no one sat with me. The entire potluck. They all went and sat with their friends. So we don't want to do that. Um, but at the same time, if we're having good community with each other, then that helps to bring people in. I remember doing an activity in one church where we kind of practiced the FORT acronym. Have you heard of that? Asking people about their family, their occupation, their religion, their testimony. We just did it with our church members. And, you know, a couple of them were neighbors on the same street, didn't know it. We don't know each other very well, so maybe taking the time to actually get to know people more than the surface. I find that it's so easy to just have surface conversation. How are you? I'm fine. Praise the Lord. And we just have no idea how people are really doing in life. I found this pretty cool in one church I went to where they designated a certain amount of um, parking space that's closest to the church building for visitors. You know, it's pretty frustrating for visitors to come and they have to park halfway across the other side of the parking lot. And, uh, and uh, you know, and it's in a visible area. So those that are standing by the doorside, the greeters, when they see uh, these visitors come in and parking on these designated parking spots, they already know that they're visitors. And um, rather than waiting for the end of the Divine Hour worship to invite people to potluck, you can invite them as soon as they walk into the church building. And uh, I, I have found church members do that. I, th I thought that's awesome. Uh, rather than waiting towards the end, just right there at the beginning as they are about to uh, grab their brochure or their uh, whatever, their literature, you just say, hey, we're staying, having potluck afterwards. Would you like to join us afterwards for that? So It lets them know already that they're, that they're welcome. Yeah, up front. Yeah. Michelle, you made mention of, uh, of potlucks and so sometimes it can feel awkward to, to go through the line first and, and not know where you're going to sit. Uh, I, I, do, I like to do something with churches. I think it's kind of fun. Not all the members think it's wonderful, but, uh, but I found it very helpful. Uh, that kind of alleviates that problem. Uh, what I'll do when I start working with the church is I will, I'll tell them how potlucks are going to go during the time that I'm going to be there. Uh, rather than having the guests stand up and go through the line first, which kind of makes them feel a little singled out and, again, tough for them to find a place to sit and somebody to sit with them, I invite everybody to go and find a seat at a table first, and then we dismiss by table to go through the line. But here's the way that, that we do it. Now, we don't tell the guests. The members know that this is the way it works, and the pastor and I, if I'm the visiting evangelist, know that's the way it works. We're going to dismiss the tables that have the most guests first. <laughs> so we'll tell, we'll tell the church members, listen, you can sit at any table that you want. 
But if you sit with a bunch of Adventists, I can guarantee you something. You're going through the line last. If you want to go through the line first, you go find a, a table that has a bunch of guests sitting at it, and you're going to go through the line faster than other people. So it doesn't take long before the members start sitting with guests, and, uh, and they get to know the guests and so forth. So again, it's not to, not to punish anybody, uh, but what it does is it helps to encourage the members to get to know guests, to visit with them, uh, and, and to realize that this is actually normal or should be normal, rather than just a cliquish, as you mentioned a, a little while ago. Now, what about if you have a church? I visited churches before, and before the, uh, the service, during the announcement time, uh, the head elder or somebody will make an announcement. We're glad to welcome you to the ABC Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're the friendliest church this side of the Ohio River, or something like that. And after visiting there for, you know, 20 minutes, you're going, no, really, you're not. You know? <laughs> Uh, you're one of the least friendly churches this side of the Ohio River, but you can't very well tell them that. So when you do have a church that's, that thinks it's friendly, but really isn't, what are some ways, some subtle ways that you can help move the church, oh, what's the word I want to use here, move them in the right direction without, without forcing and, and banging the pulpit? Any, any ideas in that? You know, that's, and you're a member at this church? No, 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 no. Well, you're visiting this church. <laughs> I've clarified that. Visited churches like that, yes. Okay, no, if you're, if you're a member, yes, if you're a member. Yeah, if you're a member in the church, of course, it, it can begin with just one person, a few people, just to kind of change the direction and the, uh, the DNA of the church. It begins with just a few people saying, look, we're going to be more intentional now in trying to direct our church to becoming more and more friendly. Um, of course, we all know there's a structure in the church. There's protocols and procedures of how we can go about it. But I don't think it needs to be passed on a board meeting saying, look, we've got to be a friendly church. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just one of the things you just... Friendliness has to be organic. Mm. And, and, that's, and, that's what, and that's what makes it genuine. Whereas if friendliness is uh, imposed like, hi, my name is Douglas. I've been assigned to be your friend this Sabbath, you know? <laughs> Um, the, the nominating committee assigned me to be a friend yeah. this Sabbath. You know, just that's not organic. That's not genuine. And so I think friendliness needs to be organic. And it, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, it just comes, I don't know, it has, it has to come across naturally. And, and I'm still trying to figure out a way on how to train members to be natural friends. So, so we're, if we're noticing that the church isn't friendly, change really starts with us. Exactly. Just yeah. us being more friendly and, and welcoming to people. Michelle. So I might, this, this is probably really easy for Douglas, but I'm going to make a confession, and Eric too, because you guys are like evangelist people. But um, when I was first a Bible worker, I'm going to admit, I knew that it was actually my, my job to go and make friends with people. Like I'm supposed to figure out who the guests are and meet them and whatnot, and I'm naturally an introvert, you might not know, but it's true. And so I would sit there when the closing hymn would play during church, and I would think, oh no. I need to go meet people. I'm going to be friendly now. <laughs> well, I will tell you what. Um, the Lord helps with that. Some of us are more natural than others, but it actually becomes natural as we do it. And so I would encourage that. Even if it's not, some people, you're like, that's my personality. I'm going to meet everyone. I'm friendly. Some of us aren't, and it takes a little more work, but it's worth it. 
a lot of times I've realized that the reasons that are not friendly, maybe we want to be, but we don't know how, especially you're talking to like non-Adventists and people we don't relate to. What do we do with that? And the Lord will help us, but it takes me putting myself aside. A lot of times the reasons that we don't is I'm selfish. I'd rather go sit with my friends and talk to other people. And I have to consciously say, Lord, remove my selfishness so that I care about other people and what the church is about rather than just what I feel like doing right now. So, so we ought to be stepping out there and doing things ourselves. Uh, you talk about being organic, um, Douglas, and there's, there's much to be said for that. In fact, needs to be said. What about something like a program like a spiritual friends program where there are, there are individuals who are, you mentioned like being a Bible worker, but who are, are tasked with your responsibility is to make sure that this new member who comes in gets connected with people. How would something like a spiritual friends or spiritual guardians or spiritual parents program work? Just kind of concisely, how, what would that kind of look like? I think that's really the missing link. You mentioned about Jane and Jerry, who was yep. it? Uh, earlier on. I think that if right from, the, right from the get-go, if Jane and Jerry were assigned a spiritual friend, uh, maybe they wouldn't have met uh, those folks that, uh, uh, that are well-meaningful in their intentions. Yeah. Um, but I think spiritual friends, another word for spiritual friends will be a, someone who's a disciple, a mentor, yeah. someone that they could be accountable to. But I think that that's definitely what's lacking in our church today is uh, finding good, solid spiritual friends and coming up with a criteria um, on who qualifies to be a mentor or a spiritual friend. All right, so, so a, a structured program, yeah. if you will, that kind of uh, connects good, solid members with the new members to make sure that they are, they are guided through this transition time. Exactly. Yeah, and it might seem like a little bit like we're, we're speaking, contradicting ourselves here, because on one side it's this saying it's got to be organic, on another side we're saying we're going to make a program. But here's the deal. The sad truth is, everyone thinks someone else is going to do it. And so, there, there are people that fall through the cracks. Because I think Eric is, is t- keeping up with Joe, and Eric's not, because Eric thought Douglas was. And yeah, we, a spiritual friends program does not re- replace organic friendliness, but it's simply a net to make sure that everyone has someone looking out for them that people don't fall through the cracks because there's at least one person who will be sure to notice if I'm not at church or if something's going on in my life or remember what my birthday was. And so creating that and having a structure is not, is not necessarily bad. It creates kind of a safety net so we don't lose people that way. Different people have different gifts. Different members have different gifts. And some of them have the gift of, of being outgoing and friendly and others are more, more structured. So there's, there's a place for both. It's interesting that when a new member joins a church, it has often been said that they go through three stages. The first stage is the honeymoon stage, and, um, and the time frame of the honeymoon stage could vary. Uh, this is where the new member thinks that the church is just perfect. Nobody can sin in the church. I mean, everybody are saints, and they, they love the church for what it is. They're, they're all floating six inches off the ground. And they're all floating six inches off the ground. And so new members often go through a honeymoon stage. Uh, the second phase that new members go through after the honeymoon stage is the uh, discouraged and disillusioned stage. This is after a while they start seeing some inconsistencies in the church. They start noticing politics in the church. They start hearing gossip in the church. And this is when the new member is at its most vulnerable. That's, this, is, this is where they, uh, they're just bombarded. They, they, this is not the church they thought it was. 
And uh, not only that, but of course the culture shock too, the difference in diet, the difference in dress, even in the difference in worship. And, and a lot of it is just, just coming at them at, all at one time. And uh, by the grace of God, if they stick it out, if they hang in there, then they go up to the next stage where they feel at home. And I think that at all three of these stages, there needs to be a spiritual friend to guide them, uh, to kind of lead them and say, look, um, when you become discouraged, when you become disillusioned, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Right. Um, this, you know, this, and, and just kind of guiding them along through those three phases of, uh, of, of a new member joining a church. So spiritual friends is excellent. Yeah. So these, these three stages that you're talking about, um, as people move through these three stages, and by the grace of God, onto the third one, and they don't fall out in the, the second stage, they need some help along the way. They need to learn how to develop a, a devotional life, how to study the Bible for themselves, how to learn how to share their faith, how to defend their faith. Let's talk a little bit about empowering a new person. What can we do to give them the tools, the skills, the, uh, what they need to make it through the disillusionment phase to the, to the at-home uh, phase? Give me some ideas of what, what that could look like. You know, I'll share an experience that I had last Sabbath. And this is... It kind of relates to, to both sides of this. Um, you know, people go through those stages in the large sense, but I think we all go through it in micro senses throughout our, uh, throughout our career in the church, throughout our lifetime. And a lot of times it's when those tough times happen, whether it's the disillusionment with the church or just stuff going on in life. And so, you know, this last Sabbath, I was having some, some stuff going on and not feeling very well about things. And there was a family who invited me home for lunch. It was a really simple thing, but I just needed it. I know that the Lord had them do that. And these are awesome people, people of prayer, who just said, hey, let me invite a few of you home. And that was something that also makes a difference in the embracing category. But it's also part of the empowerment, having the personal relations with people who are strong when you're not, people that can encourage each other, just fellowshipping is part of what helps me to, to grow. That's and, what i what seen. you've got there is, is people who are modeling genuine Christian behavior. Because as you've got a new person who's coming into the church, many times they think, okay, I'm supposed to keep the Sabbath holy. So I go to church, and then after church, I, Sabbath you're supposed to, it's a day of rest. <coughs> so I go home and I sleep the rest of the day, you know, and they're not quite sure what the Sabbath looks like. So if you've got somebody who invites you home to their lunch after, uh, to their house for lunch after Sabbath, that gives them an opportunity to kind of model what keeping the Sabbath is, is kind of like. And as you've got people who are interacting with you, they're modeling other things, like, say, devotional life or Bible study or something like that, or, or what, it, what you would do on a Sabbath afternoon as opposed to the traditional lay activities, so <laughs> to speak. So what, what are some other things that a... a a friend might be able to do to, to guide you in your, in your walk to empower you? I think the best is, and I've mentioned this in class also, is that uh, a spiritual friend or discipleship, I love the definition where uh, one person says that discipleship is simply truth being taught in the context of a relationship. 
And uh, a lot of times we can, we can share truth outside the context of relationship. And I think really the best way is to model it yourself. I mean, here's a person here that just got baptized last week. Invite them over or set up a time every Tuesday mornings at 7 in the morning and say, hey, look, we're going to have personal devotions together. And uh, I think by them seeing it, by beholding it themselves, they can get a grasp on how devotions are done rather than being... Uh, taught in a didactic way where a teacher stands up in the front and just lectures on it, they can actually see it um, <clears throat> being, you know, there's something tangible, there's something concrete that they could, uh, that they could fix themselves on. So talking about uh, new members and how they're becoming a part of the church family, you know, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, or 16 through 20, depending on how you want to slice it, uh, we often quote it. We know what it is. But many times, it's interesting, we talk about what the Great Commission is. Jesus says, go therefore and do what? Teach, Teach all nations. Uh, the, the New King James and some more modern translations translate it a little bit differently, and I think a little more accurately. It says, go therefore and make disciples. disciples. What it doesn't say is, go therefore and make church members. And there's a big difference between a church member and, and a disciple. Now, often I'll ask, I'll ask church members, what is a disciple? And the answer that I commonly get is a disciple is a follower of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've ever taken a, an exam where the instructions above the multiple choice answers said this, choose the most correct answer from the ones below. Have you taken an exam like that? Aren't, aren't those the exams that you dread? My Be students complain. The students complain, everybody complains, and, and rightly so. They're tough because you've got several correct answers. So what is a disciple of Jesus? A disciple is a follower of Jesus. That's correct. But it's not really the most correct answer. Because a, a disciple, by definition, is someone who subscribes to the teachings of a master and assists in spreading them. So if Jesus' commission is to go and make disciples, what he's really telling us is not to just make church members, but to make followers of him who will make followers of him who will make followers of him who will make followers of him. So if we're making disciples, which we should be doing, there's got to be some measure of training that's involved in that. Talk, talk with me a little bit about training a person uh, in some practical ways. What, what might that look like? Well, you know, training can be our traditional, like, training classes. The weekend seminars, different types of things where we talk about how to, how to share your faith, how to do some of these different types of things. Um, I think sometimes we miss some basics in our training. Like, how do I really study the Bible for myself? I mean, people, you came to an evangelistic series, you got spoon-fed a bunch of stuff, and then you go home and you try to read the Bible, and what do you do? And how do I digest it? And, and how do I pull stuff out of it? And so, you know, some of the training may start just in genuinely, how do I, how do I learn to be a Christian? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And they're going to go through some challenges in life. Go ahead, Douglas. There's this quote, if you don't mind, if I like, I'd like to read it. This, this quote to me from the pen of inspiration has always been the definition in my mind of what it means to train and disciple someone. And you can't go wrong with Jesus. Amen. And uh, here she says, for three and a half, for three and a half years, the disciples were under the instruction of the greatest teacher the world has ever known by personal contact and association. That, that's what makes a great teacher. That's what makes a spiritual friend. Uh, by personal contact and association, Christ trained them. 
So I think that's the definition of training, is, is training them in the context of a relationship. By personal contact and association, Christ trained them for his service. Day by day, walked and talked with them, hearing his words. So they not only got to see it, they got to hear it. Uh, hearing his words of cheer to the weary and heavy laden and seeing the power, the manifestation of his power. So they only got to see it, uh, they got to hear it also in behalf of the sick and the afflicted. Sometimes he taught them sitting among them on the mountainside, sometimes beside the sea or walking by the way. He revealed the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Wherever hearts were open to receive the divine message, he unfolded the truths of the way of salvation. He did not command the disciples to do this or that, but, but said to them, follow me. And uh, it closes off by saying, on his journeys through country and cities, he took them with him. He took them. Um, and uh, that they might see how he taught the people. I think that's training. That's discipleship. Yeah. They traveled with him from place to place. And this is what I love about this quote. They shared his frugal fare. They shared his frugal fare and like him were sometimes hungry and often weary. And this is what's uh, revolutionary. This is what's radical to me about discipleship and being a spiritual friend. On the crowded streets, by the lakeside in the lonely desert, they were with him. And this is the quote that really gets me. They, referring to the disciples, saw him in every phase of life. They saw him in every phase of life. And I think part of being a spiritual mentor, part of being a discipler, is that one must be transparent, vulnerable, and open mm. for people to see your vulnerabilities, for people to see you, you know? Every phase. That's including Jesus' discouraged phase, too. Yeah. You know, a lot of times we just want to show our members the good side where they see us Sabbath afternoon and say everything is well, but not so with Jesus. The disciples saw Jesus in every phase of his life. So, so what it sounds like you're telling us is that you've got to involve them in your life more than just on Sabbath. It's just not a nine to five. Saying, it's not like my office hours, nine to five. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. Can I add to that? Something that's super powerful in that whole concept of really living the real, real life. I had a friend um, earlier this year who shared some personal struggles that they were going through and basically said, look, um, you know, I'm telling you because I don't feel like I can tell anyone. My family's busy, uh, and if I told my church, I feel like they'd just excommunicate me. Mm. And how is that? That church has become that where the real stuff in life we don't feel like we can tell even our own church they're not doing that type of real life and, and the best thing that that came out of that particular situation is um some friends came together and started a small group so i called another friend i'm like you need to call so and so you guys need to hang out and so and a group kind of got together and started really just sharing and another group of us kind of got together we had some guys and some girls and i have seen just the growth from that in our lives because it's that it's living life in in the smaller settings and sometimes it has to be smaller settings i know small groups have been talked about for a long time but i'm not just meaning small groups for study but small groups that you actually are real with each other and share life and share what god is doing in our lives and grow together that way so it's small groups like you mentioned uh, they've been touted for quite some time i think we've all seen them done well and we've probably seen them done not so well uh, sometimes they're, they're referred to as care groups now as opposed to, to small groups. 
Uh, what, are, what are some advantages of a, of a small group or a care group being done well? And you hit some of them, uh, but let's, let's expand it just a little bit uh, more before we move on to employing members in active labor in the church for small groups. Uh, definitely, it, uh, small groups provides community, um, accountability. Um, small groups, I, I think done right, also provides it's uh, also provides good training, equipping too, mm-hmm. and um, and yeah, definitely community and, and leadership also. But uh, um, and also direction. It it also you know it passes on to the members of the church uh, their calling. What should be their calling in life? How to find out your gifts? You know, and uh, what temperament you have that you could use for the honor and the glory of God. I mean, groups take different styles and, and phases. I mean. Uh, it's not, some are more really Bible study groups. Some are more just sharing life groups. There are groups in church that are, are running groups. Mm. They go do exercise together or do something. So they don't all have to look the same. And I think that's part of it. It builds the community, but it meets different needs at different times. And uh, they, they can shift and grow and ebb and flow with that. So it's a place for the community side. Also, the teaching side, though. You really can study together in ways that are harder in the larger groups, too. Good. You know, something that kind of parallels the small groups or care groups but takes place on Sabbath morning is the Sabbath, Sabbath school, school class. Uh, Sabbath school classes has always... It can be one of the best places for a new member to be, or it can be one of the most dangerous places for a new member to be. Uh, I, I'm sure that none of you have a Sabbath school class in your church that you look at and you say, I pray that a new person never goes into that class. Uh, but I've, I've probably been in more than one or two of those. So what might, a, what might a safe Sabbath school class look like? How could that be organized uh, that, that we would feel comfortable? In fact, we would want to get new members into? What, what might that look like? I mean, some churches do specifically a new believers class, you know? If you do one of those, make sure it's run by solid people that are going to be safe for new believers. But I like those classes because maybe they cover the adult Sabbath school quarterly, but maybe not. Maybe it's going through some of the more basic beliefs of Christianity, of Adventism. You know, and ours, like before there's communion, that Sabbath school class will actually talk about what is this and what is this weird foot washing thing and some of the stuff that people go through that can be awkward in church you can do in those Sabbath school classes. Um, and so it forms a community of the new believers with some solid members. I have a bias, though, Eric. I really believe that all of our Sabbath schools should be okay for new believers. Oh, I, agree. I know that's hard, but um, everything we do in our Sabbath schools, and I know it's not going to be perfect, but that's something we can do personally is whenever we're speaking in a Sabbath school class, in a church service, if you're preaching, uh, assume that you're speaking to some people who don't know, to non-Evanists or even non-Christians. We use a lot of our own lingo, and we don't even realize it. Yeah, we do. That'd I've seen this in some churches where the Sabbath school class, they, uh, this particular Sabbath school class, takes it to a whole new level. They actually meet outside of Sabbath during right. the week, and they, and they have their own ministry, I mean, with the church that they do with the community. So it's not just they meet for Sabbath school. They actually meet outside of Sabbath uh, during the week too, and they, and, they do some, and they do some social activities together. Um, 
I think a healthy Sabbath school class is also uh, where members are very spiritually mature and, uh, you know, they can pass on to the new members um, expectations of the church, you know, and what the, some things to look out for, some things to watch out for. But, uh, yeah, this one particular Sabbath school that I went to, they actually met outside of Sabbath. And I thought that was pretty cool. It's fantastic. Yeah. Very, very few Sabbath school classes. Yeah, I've, I've hardly that seen that. Part of. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'd say especially with the younger demographic, that's hugely important. Uh, we're, we're social. A lot of us in my demographic don't have, have our own families. So if there's no social element, we're just kind of stuck out in the cold while everyone's playing with our kids and other stuff. And so, yeah, ours does. Our Sabbath school class does Sabbath afternoon hikes different days or a Vespers sometimes. Actually, the church that I go to was planted by a Sabbath school class that grew together and got so on fire for God they wanted to do something and they planted a church. And so Sabbath school can be a lot more than just a lesson study for a few minutes on a Sabbath morning. So let's kind of pull together some of the things that we've got for making a sticky church so far. Uh, much of what needs to be done should be intentional, planned and, and organized. Some of it is going to be organic and ought to be, just natural connection with people. Uh, we're seeing a social element here. We're seeing things that take place on Sabbath, but also things that take place outside of Sabbath hours. Uh, the quote that you shared, Douglas, about, uh, about Jesus and how his disciples were with him all the time uh, gives us an idea that, that we really need to be building connections with people throughout uh, our weeks uh, rather than just popping in and, and touching base with them every now and again. Let's talk a little bit about employing them in the, in the active life of the church. So you've got a new member. They've come in. They're in the honeymoon phase, or perhaps they're starting to dip down into the disillusionment and discouragement phase, we're trying to, uh, to give them some practical skills of, uh, of surviving in church and, and uh, in their Christian walk. What are some things that we could connect them with in the church to give them something that they can actively participate in that will, will let them know that they are an integral, important part of the church? What would be some things we, we might want to lean toward and some things that we might want to lean away from? This is a very difficult one, to be honest. Um, I know that as a pastor, um, trying to get new members involved in the church, um, the problem is not so much with the new members, but the problem is with the old members mm. that, uh, that um, have claimed the territory on some positions in the church. And um, that, that has been, and I think we can all resonate with that, that has been more my challenge as a pastor is, is, is trying to educate the old members than the new members. And so I've just kind of worked around where uh, new members in the church, just kind of giving them an unofficial position until the DNA of the church changes or something where I take, going back to the discipleship model, I take them along with me, we go do some visiting. Um, you know, if I see, if I see they have that, that gift of, uh, you know, of preaching or the gift of singing, you know, just getting them involved in an unofficial way, you know. Of course, we wanted to make it official, but when we make it official, of course, there's those, those uh, you know, the committees and the, the protocol and the procedures one must go through. Right. And uh, sometimes that can be an uphill battle for it, depending on what, what church. But, um, but that's what I've done in the past. Good. You know, I've really enjoyed um, when churches try to, find out what what I actually enjoy doing and like to do. I mean, an easy way to involve people, say, hey, would you, you know, collect the offering or read the scripture? And that's not a bad thing. But 
you know, how can we really link to what people enjoy? Do they enjoy hospitality? Do they enjoy the social? Do they enjoy, you know, talking to people, reaching out and trying to put them there? But I like what you said, too, about kind of taking them alongside first rather than just putting them in a position. Sometimes we do burn people by putting them in too much of a position too soon. And, and I really like to try to shield new people from church politics. Sad as that is, sometimes in, in leadership, there's a lot of stuff that goes on that shouldn't, and that's a whole other story. So, so but you, <laughs> you don't want to bring a new person in as the church secretary or, or something like that. But, uh, <laughs> so, right, we're just trying to find ways to really get them involved in, pa- in areas of their passion and whatnot, but it, not in capacities where they're going to have to kind of face some of that fire too early. Okay. So you mentioned something about uh, like collecting the offering, a uh, deacon or deaconess or something like that. A greeter, maybe somebody who sings in the, uh, in the choir at the church, if the church has a choir. Uh, what would be some other positions or, or unofficial positions? Uh, how about like sound system, working the PA, something like that might be good if they, especially young people tend to like uh, a lot of the, uh, the technology, so forth. Yeah, in my mind, I have two categories of... Uh of uh, position in the church, you have the non-influential positions and you have the influential positions in the church. And of course, someone who uh, has the gift of just, I know some positions, and I know some, one church, um, they have a church official gardener. This is the church gardener, you know, and uh, someone's just been designated to be the gardener in the church, and it doesn't ma- matter if they're Adventist or not in this particular church, because it's really a non-influential position. That's different from someone who's an outer in the church. Yeah. And so I think that um, uh, yeah, the non-influential positions, of course, like some of the positions you mentioned, you can get them in, you know, and uh, get them involved in that based on their spiritual gifts and all. Uh, the challenge is getting them into influential positions. Yeah. You mentioned spiritual gifts. There, there are spiritual gifts assessments out there. Uh, there. There are probably some pros and some cons that go along with spiritual gifts assessments. Uh, I know the, the first time I took a spiritual gifts assessment, in fact, I think it was the only time I took a spiritual gifts assessment, uh, it, it said that I scored terribly lowly, lowly, I guess that's a, it's a word today anyway, uh, I, scare, I scored very low in, uh, in evangelism. And I guess, I guess I've been performing poorly over the last 18 years, but, uh, but God is good. Yeah. It's a good point. Uh, and I've heard that too. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, I can't, I'm not going to help with that. Yeah, with these evangelistic meetings, but that's not my spiritual gift. Yeah. And so I, I picture it as the, there are circles, there are things that we, do, we are given God-given passions for, and we want to nurture that and allow people to, to use those yeah. things. <laughs> On the other hand, there are areas to grow. I think of myself when I was younger. I, I, I used to think of myself as someone with half talents. I don't know what that means, but I could do some things, but only a little bit. And so I never did much because everyone else could do it better. And to realize that sometimes God calls us to to go outside of that, and that's how he expands our gifts and talents. So when I'm working with people, I'm thinking, yeah, how can I plug them in where they will really be liking it and thrive? But also, how can we push ourselves just a little bit out of that zone um, so that we grow? It's, It's part of how God changes our characters, I think, is, is doing things we didn't even maybe think we could. Yeah. Coming out of the box a little bit. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, spiritual gifts, I think my mentality is just trial and error. Mm. You know, if uh, <clears throat> give it a try, you know, if this is something that uh, works for you, great. 
and it's confirmed by the church, then I think, you know, maybe, maybe you do have that gift in uh, whatever it is that you're pursuing. And if it isn't, now you know what's not your gift. Very good. Very good. I went to one church. It's funny, Eric. Um, little church, a lot of older people. But myself and my college friends, I was in college at the time, we somehow would get stuck in there. And it was because of one man. And his name was Paul. And when you showed up, the first thing, it doesn't matter if you're a visitor, if you're a new member, whoever you are, it's like, so, so do you play the piano? <laughs> do you sing? Like, uh, have you done this before? Paul would find a place for you. And he would not be done until there was a reason you needed to come back that next week to do something. And I mean, that's a, maybe a little bit of an extreme example, but I have a good number of friends who remember Paul. And that's specifically why, because he really, really believed in everyone doing something. And people come when they feel needed. Yeah. It's true. You know, a, a lot of people leave just because they don't feel they have something to contribute, a place they don't fit in, and so they, they drift away. Uh, we've shared a, a number of ideas so far about uh, how to make a church a little bit more sticky, but there's a high likelihood that with this assembled group here this morning, you've got some ideas that you've seen happen in churches that may, we maybe haven't covered. Uh, we've certainly not done an exhaustive uh, list of things, but I'm going to invite Rosalind to come up. She's going to uh, take this mic here and kind of uh, rove around a little bit. And if you have something that you've seen done in a church that you noticed worked particularly well, it may be the church that you're at right now, uh, maybe one that you visited somewhere where you went, wow, you know what, I really like that. Uh, I wish that I could incorporate that in my church. Uh, just share in, uh, in a moment or two what, uh, what you found that has worked out well. Go right ahead. Good morning. Good morning. I, I just came from volunteering for four and a half months in Trinidad and Tobago. And, um, but that's a, that's, a, that's a work of art over there we have to pray for. But I wanted to share some what I did in, as an AY leader in, in Connecticut years ago. It was a huge church. So what I was, I'm a social worker by profession. So I, pl I pl applied my trade in the church. So I did a survey of every single person in the church, every last one. And I did a survey of all the children in the church. And I found out what their interests were. So as I found out what the interests were, I was able to involve them in different committees in the church, and that helped the church to keep going. So I worked with the youth, personal ministries, family life, and AY, I mean, Pathfinders. We all worked together, and that church stayed packed. So I'm just sharing what we did that worked very well. Very Thank good. you for allowing me to share. Thank you very much. So again, we're just fitting the right people with the right uh, locations. I think there's another hand there. Go right ahead. What our greeters try to do at church is when someone, new people come in, you find out why they're there. Are they passing through? Are they coming to stay? You know, those kind of, are they looking for a church? And we find out that occupation, what they're interested in. And then we say, oh, we've got a guy that does computers here too. That's really, let me introduce you to him. And we make that introduction right then. Good. So that the contact gets started right away and they already have something in common. Yep. And, and that only happens if you know the other people in your church. Mm -hmm. If you don't know the people in your church, you can't make those connections. And so building those relationships within each, uh, the church is really important. Uh, that kind of gives us an opportunity to talk just a little bit about uh, social activities in the church. 
it's important to do outreach and Bible studies and evangelistic campaigns and so forth, but it's important to gather socially as a church family and do things too, because that's where you really get to know uh, others. Do we have any other uh, things that, uh, that you've seen or seen done in your churches that have, have really touched you as being effective and helpful? Any other ideas? Well, I yes, have, go right ahead, um, Rosalind. I'm a member of Dothan First Seventh-day Adventist Church in Dothan, Alabama, and we do have uh, potluck every Sabbath at our church. And, um, and we decide, the church board decided to do this because when new members, uh, I mean, when visitors come, we just invite all of them to come uh, each Sabbath. Um, and so it's, it's turned out pretty good. Good, good. You know, potlucks, or I'm, you'll pardon me if I'm slightly biased, I prefer to call them fellowship meals as okay. opposed to potlucks, because potluck sounds like maybe you might get lucky and maybe you might not, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but fellowship meals um, are fantastic uh, for churches, a great way to, to connect with guests who are coming through. And if the church doesn't do potlucks, fellowship meals, I'm still trying to correct my own, my own grammar here, um, every week, it's important for the members to realize that if the church is not having a fellowship meal, be prepared to invite somebody else home with you that afternoon. Uh, I, I do a fair bit of traveling, and uh, sometimes I happen to be traveling over a weekend, and we end up stopping uh, someplace between here and there at a church on the Sabbath. And I remember one time I was way up north, stopped at a church on Sabbath. Uh, my family, my wife was there. Uh, we happened to have a, a dog with us at the time as well. And uh, the church wasn't having a fellowship meal that Sabbath, but every member who came up to us said, we, we would really love to invite you home, but we really weren't prepared to have somebody come home with us. And so at the end of everybody leaving, they said, well, there's, there's some condiments down in the fridge downstairs. Um, and if you've got some stuff with you in the car, you could probably make some sandwiches. And so we made some sandwiches with the condiments that were so generously offered. But, uh, but anyway, they, we, we want to try to make sure people know that they're cared about and loved and so forth. And, uh, and just inviting somebody home on, on Sabbath afternoon can, can really do that. Any other experiences that you've had or things that you've seen done at, at your churches uh, that you'd like to share with us? Yes, go right ahead. Um, there was a church that we visited um, that we currently go to, and the first few weeks... My family got invited home every week by wow. another family, and that was really nice. Like, oh, they invited us home. The only problem with that was once we joined the church, we realized that's scheduled, that every week someone signs up to take the visitors home. So yeah. after the first two weeks, we didn't get invited home so much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so much for organic, huh? Yeah. Well, we've got, uh, we've got just a couple of, of minutes left here before we, uh, before we break for lunch, but go right ahead. I have the experience where, for example, a brother would be visiting from a, another country, Seventh-day Adventist, and this is a personal experience where we, the male chorale was to sing for that Sabbath and there was no musician. This was a visiting musician from overseas Jamaica, and he came and he practiced with us but, so, because I asked him to come. But before he could play, one very senior member of the church, an elder of the church, said, before you can play for us really out in the church, we have to get permission from the pastor. Mm. Uh, you know, so we have to be so careful sometimes that when you would be 
introducing a person who has the talents, is willing to play, but we have to go through so many yep. red tapes just to get them to perform, this could be discouraging. Yeah, yeah, it can be a challenge, it can be a challenge. Can I add something while I'm passing yeah. the mic, Eric? You know, I, um, I once did an evangelistic series at a small church in South Georgia, and there were a lot of old people, they couldn't do a lot of outreach and such, but um, I tell you, that church was sincerely, sincerely praying. I mean, they really were. You could tell that they wanted new people in their church. And I really believe that's why we had, we had a good number. I mean, 20, 30 guests coming out at a very small, more guests than members, pretty much, at this small church. And it wasn't the advertising, and it wasn't that they invited everyone. I really have seen that when we sincerely in our hearts are coming to God and we want people and God's working in our lives, God brings people. And so that might be a thing is if your church is having some of these issues, start praying for your church. Find a few people that'll pray together. When our hearts are right, we're going to know what to organically do with people, but, but God's got to work in us. Uh, good morning. My wife and I live in Dallas, Texas. We live and work near White Rock Lake. Some of you have been to Dallas, Texas, and we're involved with a church plant. We we have our company status, but we're somehow we have the potluck. The we one of my coworkers calls it potluck, but I like fellowship better. <laughs> Fellowship's much better. But we have a fellowship. We have a theme for the different weeks of the of the four weeks in every month, and sometimes I know four times a year we have five Sabbaths. So we have that. That's helped us. We've had guest speakers. We have um, more of a lay pastor. He's working on his master's degree in ministry from Andrews, but he does it through Southwestern Adventist University. But we're kind of stuck at the number of 30, and some of you know that 30 day uh, weekly average gives you the company status. But we're trying to move to church status which is weekly average of 50 and we're we're just stagnating at 50 we do we do outreach we we try to be very friendly to every each and every member that attends especially like you say for the first second and third times they need to get a job if or give them something to do and collecting the offerings sometimes brings people back if you give them a task but i'm just open to any of your ideas where you've maybe been involved with a church plant, reach company status, and how do you move to the church status? That's, that's my challenge to myself, but if any of you have ideas, I'm willing to hear them. Yeah, for, uh, for continuing to grow churches, one thing that I've found very consistently of late, and it's probably gone on much longer than that, it's only that I've noticed it of late, is the reason that people come to church. I'm all for doing outreach activities, cooking schools and health lectures and Daniel seminars and the whole nine yards. I, I believe in them, I love them, they're wonderful, uh, and, and keep doing them. But what I've found very much the case lately is when I talk with people who are being baptized at evangelistic meetings, is that we ask them, how did you hear about this? And over and over again, my friend invited me. My friend invited me. My friend invited me. So before anything else, we need to just be making friends with people. Just building friendships with people. Because when your friend invites you to something, as opposed to a stranger inviting you to something, it's an entirely different experience. 
But when your friend says, would you like to join me? Would you like to be my guest at whatever the event is? Now it's a personal invitation from a friend. So if we can just build friendships with people outside the church, that's going to go a long way toward helping them to make decisions to become a part of the church family. One risk that we run is the longer we are Adventists, the fewer non-Adventist friends we have. When we first joined the church, now I realize some here may have been raised in the church. Myself, I, I wasn't. I didn't even know that the Adventist church existed until after I got into college. I'd never met an Adventist, never saw a church, didn't even know, um, which just tells me we've still got a little bit of work to do. But, but we, when we first come into the church, we've got a lot of non-Adventist friends. And the longer we're in it, the more we surround ourselves with Adventists. That's not necessarily bad. It's just something to recognize that the best time to reach others may be when we first came in, because we've still got a lot of friends who are non-Adventists. And if we've been in the church for a long time, maybe we need to intentionally find some friends who aren't Adventists so that we can reach out to them. Was there another hand back there? Yes, go right ahead. Just a couple of comments. I don't know if any of you have been to Copper Mountain, Colorado, but Barbara Taylor started a church there, and we have a wonderful community chapel that we use on Sabbath. And um, so if you come there, there is always a fellowship dinner afterwards, and uh, Barbara Taylor's usually there about half the time. But it's a wonderful place to be if you're in the mountains, and she's very intentional about greeting everyone personally herself, making everyone very welcome. What do you do? Um, I was going to also mention we travel some, and so our family went to a particular church in another state on the way to an event we were going to. And afterwards, my husband thought, that is the most unfriendly church I've ever seen. I mean, there was a greeter lady who was obviously assigned to greet, and then no one spoke to us the whole time we were there, which was a little... And our son said, wasn't that a friendly church? You know, I think he liked the greeter, and that was plenty for him. So I, I honestly think it depends on your personality a little bit. And if you're a friendly person, you expect other people to go out of their way to be friendly. Yep. If you're not so friendly, you're pretty good if they don't overwhelm you, you know. Yep. And so the, the take can be a little different. Yeah, can be. One question. What do you do? The church I grew up in, 55 years, we had an elder who would stop anyone who came in, and uh, on their second visit, um, he would remind them that we were coming to church and they needed to dress more appropriately. Yes, yes, and he insisted on a suit and tie and all of that, and I never forgot that. I, that's just, and so what we had to do is spot the people who are maybe not making the best impression and head those people off at the pass and circle them in with you f with friendship and love because many churches have somebody who's very much on guard making sure that the standards are upheld. Yeah, that, that, that is what true. What do you and do about that? What I, do you do about that person? Well, you did the right thing with the guests as they came in and, uh, and head them off at the pass and, and keep them headed in a, in a good direction. It's worth visiting with the person who, with the, with the old saint, we'll put it that way. Worth visiting with the old saint and saying, I realize what you're trying to do, but here's what the reality is. Here's what's actually happening. And you want to do it in Christian love, but at the same time, if, if, they are, if they are causing damage rather than good, it's appropriate to, to let them know that that's what the result is, uh, 
is coming from them. So, uh, but again, do it in, in, in love and care, but uh, at the same time, it does need to be addressed. Uh, otherwise, all that time and effort that you spend trying to bring people is going to be undone by somebody who's somewhat misguided. Yeah. Yes, we got time for, I think, one more comment here, then we'll have a few closing ones because it is uh, it's just about time. So I've got a couple of more things to let you know before we uh, tie it off, but go right ahead. Okay. Well, um, I'm actually going to speak on behalf of our organization. NAPS is a group that all during the year we travel to churches. So um, I'm coming more of on the perspective of visiting a lot of churches. We, in, we've traveled to over 40 states. Some of you have seen us at your church sharing testimonies from the 23 different countries where we minister or where our branches are located. And um, one thing that I have really loved, because just like what you're saying, not everybody wants to be over-greeted. It can be a bit overwhelming sometimes, but... Um, but one thing I've loved is a real church. Uh, there's been some churches of late where they open the floor up for like conversation during divine service. Does that make sense? Like testimonies, like prayer requests. That's what I'm saying. Like, so now a church, because we talked about Fort, but when I come to a church, I'm just there, I'm sitting. But now you have someone in the front and they're weeping because their son is still lost. And then you have someone that goes and embraces them. Even though they didn't embrace me, I'm like, wow, this is a nice church. And um, we actually had someone call us um, recently. Uh, it was at a church that we went to in Orlando. It's Umatilla or something like that. And we had visited there to do their AY service and, present and present what God has been doing. And they called the NAPS office, and as we're talking, they, make, they were making a donation. But as we were talking, I find out that they're not Adventists. And I was like, so what were you doing at that church? They said, the Umatilla church was, I'm, I'm not, a, I don't know why they go to church on Saturday and all that, but it's the friendliest church I've ever gone to. And that was our experience as well. So she's like, I'm Pentecostal. So, you know, but they are so friendly. So it's just showing that, that real love and family, I think, where you can share freely. Amen. That, that genuineness can't, uh, can't be faked. Uh, let's tie us off with, uh, with just one, uh, one more question. I'm going to give it to both, uh, both Michelle and uh, Douglas. And just in 30 seconds or so, what can I do when I get back to my church? So we've got a bunch of ideas here. Let's, let's narrow it down just to one or two. What can I do when I get back to my church? One or two ideas real quick. Yeah, so maybe the biggest thing is go back and pray, Lord, you know, how can I better form relationships with people? Ask the Lord who the Lord would like you to invest in in your church. That's something I'd recommend. Say, Lord, who would you want me to specifically disciple? Jesus chose a few, and he really worked with those. So on top of the other things, maybe pray for that and realize, speaking to the brother who is doing the church plant and trying to grow it, these things do take time. Yeah. We're realizing a lot of the people we're having baptisms with have been two years or more in the making. So don't give up on it just because they're not joining right now. It may take that cycle of years and that investment in people took Jesus a little while too, but it's worth that time. Good. Douglas? Talk and pray with your leaders about whatever issues that's causing people to leave the church. And uh, in a prayerful attitude, come up with some creative ways uh, to close that back door. Very good. 
So as we're uh, leaving, just wanted to leave you with a couple of ideas here, some, uh, some takeaways that you can uh, do when you, when you leave. If you are interested in learning more, I think your church might benefit more from uh, some member retention weekend seminars. Uh, you can contact It Is Written. We do these on a regular basis, so uh, just let us know, and we'll see if we can find a time to come visit with your church or, uh, or district. You can also visit saltevangelism.com to learn more about how to share your faith effectively, retain members, and so forth. That's available online. Let's have prayer as we uh, finish this morning together. Father, thank you for giving us time today to talk about how we can build a sticky church. We ask that you will bless each one of us as we desire to not just win souls to you, but keep souls uh, for your kingdom so that when Jesus returns, he'll have a large harvest to take home with him. Thank you for spending time with us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.